welcome to The Geek in Review, a podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gabauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. So Marlene and I are in the office today. We had a uh, presentation at lunch and we just decided to stick around here today. But uh, we have brought in a couple of authors from Toronto. So we have Abdi Adid, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Toronto, and Benjamin Allery, the Osler Chair in Business Law at the University of Toronto, and also affiliated faculty member at the Vector Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which I, I just love that. Um, they have a new book coming out later this year in July called The Legal Singularity, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Law Radically Better. Abdi and Ben, welcome to the Geek in Review. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Marlene. Thanks for having us. So before we dive into the book, Abdi and Ben, tell us a little bit about yourselves and what got you interested first in the law and then about AI and the law. Um, ben, why don't, why don't you take a stab at this first? Sure. I, I think this could be a very long answer. I'm going to make it a, <laughs> a shorter answer. I've been a, a tax law professor here at the University of Toronto since 2004. I've I, I went straight through undergrad, went through law school, did graduate work in economics, graduate work in law, and and then did a judicial clerkship at the Supreme Court. And and I, as an academic, my focus is tax law. I've been at uh, the tax law professing game since 2004. In 2011, I was associate dean of the faculty here at the University of Toronto. I was in the context of leading a review of the curriculum, the first year curriculum, that I got really interested in thinking about the future of legal education. And it became totally obvious to me that artificial intelligence is going to dramatically affect the future of the profession and of legal education. And that led me to ultimately co-found BlueJay, which is a legal technology company here in Toronto with a couple of my colleagues here from the law school. It was in that context that I then uh, became interested in in writing this book with Abdi. And so it's a, a series of coincidences that led me to this point, but really an intense interest in artificial intelligence and the law. And the law fascinates me. Tax law, including tax law, it's kind of the operating system for society. And so this is a continuous outgrowth and development of, of my thinking about the law. Oh, that's interesting. I th- I'm sure many of our listeners are, are familiar with with Blue Jay. Yeah. Um, Opti, how about you? Sure. So my answer really should be shorter because I'm a lot earlier in my career than Ben. I'm, That's a polite uh, way to put it. Both. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm old is what he's saying, I think. <laughs> hardly, hardly. Ben's actually one of you know, one of our youngest faculty here at the law school. Um, so I, like Ben, uh, grew up here in Canada went through my undergraduate education, went off to law school, later did a postgraduate law degree. And I practiced for a few years as a commercial litigator in New York, focusing on complex corporate litigation and arbitration. And in that time, I quite enjoyed what I was doing, but I noticed pretty quickly that a lot of what I was doing was drudge work that kind of was somewhat, at least on occasion, a bit of a letdown based on what I had studied. You know, I went to law school and we were debating lofty ideas <laughs> and thinking about uh, complex legal questions. And I spent a lot of my time in the early years of practice, as your listeners are for sure familiar, you know, in the legal research universe, trying to find the right cases, running endless 
Boolean search strings, right? So part of what I was doing was helping to supply information to more senior lawyers and helping to come up with legal advice for clients. But I was doing so in a manner that I even recognized then as being a little bit inefficient. And so I had always had my eye on ways to improve the practice, the day to day, especially for early career associates like myself. Uh, but I also had my eye on more creative pursuits. I wanted to affect the law at a more systemic level. I wanted to help think through complex problems and the day-to-day, -day, you know, one-off client engagements weren't really exactly my speed because I wanted to sort of ponder the big questions. And I was fortunate when I moved back to Toronto to uh, get to know Ben a little bit better and learn about Blue Jay. And I eventually joined Blue Jay as uh, later the vice president of legal research. So I led the team of lawyers and research analysts that did the work that helped inform uh, the tools that Blue Jay developed, um, the most notable of which for um, my own work was the AI-informed predictive tools, helping to predict how future uh, courts are likely to rule on new legal situations. And so in that time, uh, Ben and I realized that there was a ton of overlap in our ideas, and we sort of thought about the future of the law in similar ways. And um, since then, you know, as part of that work, I was teaching part-time here at the law school, uh, related courses in legal research and writing. And this past year, I joined the faculty as a full-time uh, law professor teaching foundational first-year subjects like torts and civil procedure. So the name of the book is The Legal Singularity, which, first of all, that's a pretty bold title. Um, you know, I thinking, love that title. Think, thinking about uh, law becoming self-aware. So, uh, Ben or, or Abdi, what's, what's kind of the main thesis of the book? What should the reader expect? The main thesis of the book is that when we look at technology, we look at big things that are happening with technology, this is going to come as no surprise to your audience now in the wake of ChatGPT and, and all of the developments that are, are pretty uh, top of mind these days. Four years ago, when Abdi and I started working on the book, it was, it was a lot less obvious that artificial intelligence was going to make a really big impact, at least among most lawyers, it wasn't obvious. Uh, there was a lot of skepticism. The claim of the book is that as we see computational power continue to double every couple of years, and as we see the cost of computing power come down, as we see more and more legal information becoming digitized, and as we see improvements in algorithms, machine learning algorithms, the cost of predicting legal outcomes is going to essentially vanish. It's going to become very clear what would happen in court with respect to a particular situation in terms of the legal outcome. And this becomes extremely interesting. What happens as a result of this? And for Abdi and, and for me, we, we decided that it would make sense to do a book-length study of the implications for the law across a number of dimensions and explore. What does it mean for the judiciary? What does it mean for legal education? What does it mean for practicing attorneys? What does it mean for society generally? What does it mean for democracy and voting? So we decided to, to take it all down. But essentially, the key insight is this, which is that the law is going to become complete. It's going to become much clearer, much more fair as a result. And as we put it in the subtitle of the book, it's how artificial intelligence can make the law radically better. So, I mean, how are you seeing that um, applied now? I mean, how are you seeing that movement 
now? Or is this something truly you think is going to be more in the future? One, you're seeing widespread curiosity, right? You're seeing a lot of lawyers recognizing that there's great opportunity for them to um, do their job faster, better with additional technological support. Um, Blue Jay is sort of proof positive of that. You know, the company started in 2015 and since then has had many, many clients among large law firms, accounting firms, both in tax and employment law. And so the, the evidence of the uptake, the fact of the uptake rather, is evidence that there's uh, curiosity and interest and that lawyers are willing to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to being forward-looking. What we're also seeing is, I, I would say, a deep interest in the future of the profession. Uh, sometimes it's motivated by anxiety about what's to come, right. right? But it's a healthy conversation for us to engage in nevertheless. And part of why we wrote this book was not just to reassure people, but to help them see sort of their place in this unfolding future. And so the fact that we're having that conversation, the fact that ChatGBT has sort of woken everyone up and, and made them realize, hey, this is like more around the corner than you think, um, it gives us an opportunity to uh, engage in the conversation with more rigor, to have a more sophisticated and mature conversation, closer to what you're seeing in um, other sort of uh, industries. For instance, right now there's a pretty sophisticated and mature conversation having uh, happening in the world of transportation policy around how to accommodate self-driving vehicles. You don't you 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 don't have um, yet the same say widespread acceptance in the world of law about this being the imminent future, uh, so to speak. And so part of what we're trying to do is motivate that conversation and encourage people to really engage with us about what we want this future to look like because we have a window right now for us to uh, sort of forge a consensus about how we want things to look, how we want the legal industry to look, how we want all of our legal institutions to look, and by extension, how we want our society to look. And so the time for this book and the time for this conversation is now. And the early uptake that we're seeing in the legal industry through technologies like Blue Jay is a suggestion that they're not going away and they're only expected to proliferate. Well, you know, on that, uh, I want to ask you about the intended audience for the book, but uh, I want to preface that a little bit with, have you ever seen the legal market react so quickly as it has over the past, you know, three, three and a half months uh, since the launch of ChatGPT? Because I think we've seen, well, here, here's how I view it, and you can tell me if, if I'm wrong with this, is... You know, for the past, I'd say five years, we have had product, legal product after legal product after legal product that says we use artificial intelligence, except as the user, you never really, you kind of have to trust that that's going on in the background. And it wasn't until we had a product like ChatGPT, completely not a legal product, just a every, every you know, every person product that all of a sudden engages the user and it, it i think it all of a sudden after five years of being told you know ai is coming now all of a sudden it's real because we've interacted with it we get to see the the response to it so uh the timing of this book may may be perfect uh for the market so first of all have you ever seen the the, the legal market react like it has now and then who do you think is going to be very interested in, in reading your book now? I think what's really fascinating, Greg, is we haven't seen a reception of any kind of tech product 
like we've seen for ChatGPT, right? I think it launched at the end of November. By the end of January, OpenAI reported that there were over 100 million active users of the platform. And that apparently is a faster adoption curve than any other software ever in history. So it's not just the legal profession that has reacted more aggressively in response to ChatGPT. I everybody. think it's everybody more generally who's who's reacted really aggressively to it. It's, it's very interesting. I would say the particular genius of it, yes, the chat and the results that you get out of using ChatGPT are really engaging and curious. And I think the the, one of the key things, the underappreciated aspects of it is the user interface and the user experience. We're all used to sending messages back and forth to each other, and it makes people feel really comfortable with having that interaction with the system, having sending a message and then awaiting the response from the system, seeing what it is, and then sending another response back and forth. That's really the, I think, the conquering genius of chat GPT. And I, I say that because I was very excited about OpenAI dropping what they call the DaVinci 3 model, their GPT-3 model, um, which ChatGPT is is using. I was very excited about that weeks and weeks before ChatGPT dropped. And I was, I was announcing it on social media and talking about it and say, hey, read this output. I think this is really engaging. And it was available to everybody on OpenAI's playground yeah. and people could use it. And it didn't catch fire because it wasn't wrapped in that user interface of having a conversation with ChatGPT. I think that was a really great innovation. Um, and I, I think because that innovation has really caught people's imagination, I think the intended audience for this book is going to be quite broad. I think people are really curious about, well, what does this mean for things like medicine? What does this mean for things like education? What does this mean for areas like law that are really core to how we organize ourselves as a society? And I think we have a lot to say about that in the book. We also ask a lot of questions in the book and we provide far fewer answers, but we're identifying the questions and we want to convene a conversation. We want to trigger the right kinds of conversations in the book. And we are strong believers that, that these are conversations that need to happen. And so this is this is why we've written the book. And and you know lawyers don't have a monopoly on good thoughts about what should happen to the legal system. We're firm believers in that too. I'm not sure if they'd agree, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so technological singularity. So that's like the definition of that is is basically this sort of hypothetical future point where technology growth becomes uncontrollable, irreversible and you know results in unforeseen change how does that relate to the concept of of legal singularity which is your title so the legal singularity is really as ben described earlier about the practical elimination of legal uncertainty and the sort of impact on our institutions and our society as a result of the elimination of that uncertainty it's a future state where the law is knowable in real time and on demand, and where we can start to do things um, that we're not, we weren't previously able to do because the law was either difficult to ascertain or we didn't often have a sort of normative consensus around what the law ought to be. And so it's a concept that rests 
somewhat on the idea of the technological singularity, but it is not as though the two can't develop sort of coextensively. Why? Because the technological singularity contemplates much more of a totalizing event. It's about like all of uh, society dramatically changing as a result of technology reaching this ability to perform functions that we couldn't previously imagine and anticipate. What we're trying to do is account for the impact of technological improvement on law and the related institutions. And so in some ways, it's an equally uh, socially important concept, but it doesn't purport to describe um, as much as a technological singularity purports to describe. Our focus as lawyers, law professors, as people interested in all of the uh, things that emerge from the world of law here has been on law, its institutions, and also the sort of law-adjacent uh, uh, subject areas, but we're not here making, we're not exactly making um, predictions uh, about the impact of these same technologies on radiology, on necessarily the labor market, on transportation, where our, our analysis is not cabined by any measure, but it is really a law-oriented approach. So one of the things and you mentioned it earlier is talking about using AI to enable legal prediction. I want to I mean if you take that to an extreme, I could see some people going, well why don't we just, you know, uh, do away with with judges and let computers uh, and let the AI take over and decide and, and, decide. and then in that way you know, we take the human element out of it and we, you know, and we just have, you know, the law. But I don't think that's necessarily what you're going for here. But when you talk about AI-enabled legal prediction work, what, what are some of the potential benefits of that do you, that you see? Sure, I can start this off. Let, let me first start by saying prediction is already what we do in the law. I know some people are spooked by the idea of technologized legal prediction, but think about the legal statements that we make. If I say I own a home, I might be saying my name is on a document somewhere. But what am I really saying? I'm saying that if it came down to it and someone contested my right to, or my uh, interest in my home, I'm confident that a future court would vindicate my property interest. I'm making a legal prediction. Almost all of our legal statements involve uh, some prediction. And that the thing that lawyers do day to day is try to forecast what's likely to happen based on their experience, based on their knowledge, you know? And this has been law's long-held aspiration. If you go back to Oliver Wendell Holmes in 1897 in The Path of the Law, he talked about the prophecies of what courts might do and nothing less is what I mean by the law. I'm maybe butchering that quote a little bit. Um, but when we're rendering legal advice, clients are not coming to us saying, explain the contours and the multi-step doctrine involved in a given tax question. They're saying, if I structure my transaction this way, am I likely to elicit scrutiny from regulators? Am I likely to run afoul of what courts have determined is the law in this given area? So really what we're trying to do all along, even in our, let's call them analog ways, is make legal predictions. And so part of the, the, the idea here is that technology through harnessing computing power, AI, machine learning, different uh, data science techniques, is able to to assist with that prediction in ways that we might be too limited to do, right? And so it's helping to achieve what is uh, the thing that we already do and the long-held aspiration of the law. So what does that practically mean? Well, 
It means a few things. It means that AI can help you predict how future courts are likely to rule in new situations. For litigators, that means evaluating the strength of your case, right? It means getting a sense of whether or not your case is a winner or a loser. It means being able to have the certainty of outcome such that you can actually plan your affairs accordingly. If you're, say, a corporate lawyer, transactional lawyer engaged in, for instance, tax planning, you will have a sense of what kind of advice to give based on where the line is, so to speak. And so this is an idea that is sort of broadly applicable and can uh, fundamentally change our relationship to the law, not as the uncertain thing that we have to worry about, but the thing that we know with absolute confidence operates on us, and then we can uh, adjust our behavior accordingly. Of course, I should add that there's sort of long tail potential here, which is you and I, in a sort of retail sense, having a real-time sense of our legal rights and obligations. One of the major challenges that people have, we know we talk a lot about access to justice as lawyers, well, one major problem of access to justice is uh, inaccessible legal knowledge. Not only because it's actually hard to reach, as a matter of fact, and sometimes uh, behind lock and key, expensive lock and key, but also because sometimes it's difficult to understand, difficult to parse. That's why you need uh, trained intermediaries very often. So one potential thing that could happen is just lay people, individuals without uh, sophisticated legal training will have sort of a sense of what the law is. But long before that, we're talking about great opportunity for cost savings for lawyers to be able to reduce the cost of their legal research, perform analysis much more quickly. Obviously, you know, layering their own experience and expertise atop that, but being able to bring down their costs so they can take on more cases potentially, uh, more engagements, pivoting the economic model of legal services from margin to volume, you know, being able to do more, satisfy more legal needs. And then it goes without saying that it's a great opportunity for us to be creative, right? Like think about why many of us went to law school. I didn't go to law school necessarily to spend my waking hours uh, searching through legal research databases. You know, I dreamed of having a courtroom rhetorical flourish, you know, like a Perry Mason moment or something, or the Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth <laughs> moment, right? Well, really, if we can start to automate through technology some of the drudge work involved, we can free up the time to be more creative, to do things like provide strategic value to our clients, think through implications, and socially have conversations not just about what the law is, but what the law ought to be and what we want it to look like. So, you know, you highlighted a few areas of where law can improve. Do you have any other areas where there might be holes, you know, in the current state of law or in legal institutions that could be improved and, and how? I think there are no shortage of <laughs> examples of where the law could be that approved, is the Marlene. softball uh, question but, of the year, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think what I'll say is I, I'll put my law professor hat on as a tax law professor here and say one of the things that we often see the courts talk about are the the values of certainty, predictability, and fairness in tax law, and and how taxpayers are entitled to plan their affairs on the basis of you know the Internal Revenue Code and the regulations and. There are so many instances where taxpayers really struggle to find out where where are the boundaries, where are the where are the lines that ought not to be crossed in setting up a tax structure 
we know that there are doctrines like the economic substance doctrine, the step transactions doctrine, where it really requires a judgment call about have have I gone too far? Have I overstepped in you know availing myself of tax benefits that I really want? Uh, I think I can get like I'm reading the the text of the Internal Revenue Code, or I'm reading the text of these regs, or I'm reading this private letter ruling. I think I can get there by reading these documents, but I'm not entirely sure if this is going to survive scrutiny if an auditor comes looking at this very closely. And I don't want to ask, because if I ask, for sure they're going to look very closely at it, so I'd prefer not to ask. I'm just going to do it and go ahead. But then I, as a business person, if, if this is my business, I'm going to have the sort of Damocles. I'm going to feel like there's a sort of Damocles dangling like over my head until those years are no longer um, auditable by the IRS. I'm going to take a position. I'm not. It's it's an uncertain tax position. I don't know for sure if it's going to survive. That's just one really simple example. If and when we approach a legal singularity many years from now, it'll become absolutely clear what the tax law requires. And it, I will have confidence that that's the right outcome. Equally, the IRS is going to have confidence if they audit me and it, it won't be an interesting question. It'll be, okay, that over, you overstepped right there. We see that in the documentation and, it, and it'll just make for very good fences between taxpayers and the IRS, for example. That's just one small example. But what we see is it'll lead to certainty, predictability, and fairness in the tax law. And it, it's, it's going to be a good outcome uh, for everyone, except you know maybe for some of us who really enjoy tax games because they're a really interesting puzzle. I love tax games as a tax professor. I love looking at the complexity of the law and, and figuring out uh, new strategies. But I can I can take that desire to to look at really difficult puzzles offline, as it were, and and maybe not do it professionally um, for tax planning. I'm just curious. So, uh, do you see similar problems arising as we're seeing, say, in the uh, the automotive industry with self driving cars about who is responsible? So, if we get to a point, for example, that uh, we use AI to do our tax advice or uh, something I think more practical. Uh, let's say I'm a, I'm a consumer and I'm, I'm having a, uh, you know, I want to return a product to my, uh, to the store, which I bought it and they have an arbitration clause. You know, do you see like the AI being the arbitrator and, you know, coming up with an answer and then, uh, you know, do, do we allow the, the AI to do it or, you know, what if it, it contradicts what the law, you know, what a judge would say? Um, I, I, I can see some really interesting uh, versions of this on the horizon. Like our strong view is that it, it really makes a ton of sense to keep humans in the loop in a lot of these arbitration contexts and the judicial context for a significant period of time. And even even as we approach the legal singularity and people begin to have kind of like just a lot of confidence in algorithmic decision-making. I still think for the same reason that we have pilots in aircraft and, you know, if you're taking a commercial flight uh, virtually anywhere, a lot of that flight is going to be done by algorithm. But I feel personally much more comfortable 
knowing that there are pilots in the front of that aircraft uh, as we're taking off, even though intellectually I understand they're basically running the algorithms that are responsible for um, piloting that plane much of the time. I think the same thing is going to be true in our legal system. Even if an initial answer is machine generated, I think I'm going to want, as a consumer in, in the case that you described, Greg, I'm going to want the ability to appeal to a human to have a look at the, what the algorithm suggesting. If I think that it misfired, if I think that it missed something, if I think that I'm being treated unfairly, I'm going to want a human to interrogate and audit that machine-generated decision. And I don't think that goes away uh, for a very long time. I think we're going to want those rights of appeal. And it's really, we, we want the belt and suspenders kind of approach here. And I, I think it's going to be a feature of the system for a long time. Now, a lot of your listeners are going to say, oh, thank goodness, now I, I can still appeal decisions. And then, you know, it just actually expands the number of things that I could object to <laughs> on appeal. I could talk about, well, the algorithm's biased and how's it been trained and, and how did it reach this decision? And I, I think that's very healthy for the system. And so I think this ties into something that Abdi was saying earlier. We think that the the composition of legal jobs is going to change over time. The activities that we find ourselves engaged in as lawyers will change over the coming years. But I, I think we're going to see even more lawyers uh, and, and practitioners doing things a little bit differently going into the future, but providing a, a much greater access to justice. Right now, it's such an elite thing. Many folks don't really have the resources to hire an attorney if they have if they if they have a dispute they just have to make the the difficult decision to lump it and kind of carry on as best they can they don't have the resources necessary to fight for their rights and vindicate those rights and I, I think that's going to change too and so this is how we think the law becomes radically better there's better information about what your entitlements are and actually there's human review of machine judgments uh, which will lead to accelerated learning in the law. Greg, if I may also, human beings involved in the loop really improves the technology over time. So I heard a story about an algorithm that was being used uh, by a state government to determine whether certain people with uh, mobility issues were entitled to a publicly funded personal support worker. And so it previously was a determination done by nurses acting as bureaucrats and they would interview people and review applications and determine whether or not they should have a personal support worker. Well, as part of an austerity measure, they phased out the nurses and had an alg algorithm and a questionnaire that people would fill out. And one of the questions on the questionnaire was, do you have foot pain? And it forced people into this binary choice of yeah. yes or no. Well, some of the people that answered no were people who were amputees, people who were paralyzed, because mm -hmm. technically speaking, they don't have right. foot pain. Now, if there was a nurse conducting an interview, they would have spotted it like this, right? And so keeping them in the loop helps to inf inform the technology before the disastrous consequences, helps to refine it so that the next iteration of that questionnaire, which is going to uh, retrieve the algorithmic information, is going to actually take into account the kinds of things that a nurse would in a deeply human interaction. And we're not saying that humans should be involved in the loop for the foreseeable future as a concession to people who are skeptical of the technology. We're saying this because we know that the things that 
the law deals with are deeply human questions and it's a deeply human enterprise. And there's more than ones and zeros and at stake. There's, um, you know, our, our legal system has notions of mercy and fairness and empathy and procedural justice and all these things that right now human beings still have to contribute. And then of course, there's the situations where we say, okay, the algorithm is predicting this outcome as the correct or optimal one, but taking into account emerging social mores or, or um, taking into account the you know, broader consequence that might escape the underlying data, we want to go in this different direction. We want to mount a social intervention. We want to uh, treat uh, this outcome differently because we think that that's what's going to put us on the best path um, down the line. And so keeping human beings involved in, and engaged in that dialogue, I think, is absolutely critical at this stage. Now, of course, there could be a time when humans have sort of done the job of improving technologies to the point where we can start to focus on other things. And uh, part of our contention in this book is that if that day is going to come, it's going to take a lot of our effort and coordination to get there. So how do you address concerns about AI bias and ethics in the legal domain? This is an abdi answer for sure. <laughs> yeah, so we've been we've been talking about this and thinking about this because we're you know we're optimists about the future state of technology, but we're not people who are burying our heads in the sand around the problems. And so, I think you can sort of think about the problems of bias and ethical questions raised by AI. You know, not all of those problems are created equal. So, in one sense, you have. Uh, like reflection and amplification type of problems where what's happening is we're projecting social harm, social ills, negative histories into the future. For instance, if we built a prediction tool tomorrow that um, wanted to predict wages, right? What the right wages are for a given employee. Well, if we're not attentive to the history of the gender wage gap, right? We risk project projecting it into the future. If the Federal Housing Administration um, built a predictor tool that was trying to determine whether or not, um, or sorry, who was eligible for a federally insured mortgage product of some kind, and you use the historical data that the FHA has, and you didn't pay attention to the history of redlining and racial discrimination, which the FHA is admitted to, then you risk projecting that into the future, right? And so part of the 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 problem of bias is really a problem of us having social ills at a society we haven't adequately addressed, right? There is a history of, uh, say, racism, gender discrimination, class discrimination, these kinds of problems, which of course are going to surface through technology if we're not paying attention, if we're not taking adequate stock of those things. Now, the technology doesn't take us off the hook. We still have to address those issues and make a decision about the kind of society we want to live in, right? But there's a way in which it helps to disinfect the problem, so to speak. So if we built a, a predictor, again, uh, that was trying to predict future wages, and it did indeed project the wage, gender wage gap into the future, and it said, women get 78 cents, men get 100 cents, we wouldn't stand for that. We would be shocked, you know, I, I, it, would, it would be jarring to see. But the gender wage gap nevertheless persists in our society in, in the diffuse way. It exists in relationships, it exists, it, it's embedded in institutions, and much to our shame, it continues. And so there's a way in which the technology can bring those things into stark relief. And so even as just an empirical research tool, the um, uh, predictive tools have some value. Now, we have to have 
the collective conversation around what the right interventions are. So that's those are problems of just projecting uh, our you know bad history into the future. But then there are other kinds of problems which are distinctly posed by technology. So for instance, there are some people who think that a decision rendered by t a technology of some kind is per se neutral, right? Like we have to have conversations around transparency and those kinds of things. There's sometimes uh, there have been questions, especially in around some of the uh, cases involving algorithmic prediction and criminal justice around whether or not we could adequately cross-examine an algorithm because of, say, our trade secret laws. Like These are the kinds of uh, things that we need to contend with, but I think we need to distinguish between the kinds of problems which are really a reflection of unaddressed social problems or inadequately addressed social problems and the kinds of problems which are new technological problems. I think, if you're, I think for those folks that are paying close attention, you'll see there's a lot of that first category, and we are still on the hook collectively as a society for resolving those issues. Now, we've had, I think this may be our fifth or sixth show just this year where we've kind of focused on AI. And there's been a consistent answer to this question, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw that answer out first, but then I want, I want you guys to address it in a broader sense, and that is uh, when we ask about how is this going to affect the labor market, especially in, in the legal industry, typically with the answer we get back, and I think Damien Real may have been the, the person that gave this answer, was that AI will not replace lawyers, but AI plus lawyers will replace uh, lawyers who do not use AI. So I want you guys to think broader about that. Does that same concept apply to law professors, tax advisors, court clerks, judges, you know, look broader at the legal industry and where do you think there may be significant impacts on uh, the labor involved in the legal industry? It is really interesting. I think one of the big impacts is going to be, I think there are going to be so many impacts across different legal roles. Let's focus on legal education. I, I gave a I gave a talk to the faculty here, all, all my colleagues, uh, about a month ago, it was February 6th, about ChatGPT, what is it, why should we care, what should we do about it? And it was totally fascinating to see my colleagues really struggling with this. Should we, and 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 they, they went back and forth. Should we try to ban it? Should we contain it? Should we make it clear to students that this would be an academic offense if they leveraged ChatGPT to help inform their academic writing. And to that, I said, colleagues in my classes, so I teach uh, an income tax law course, two of them, and I teach uh, a law and technology seminar. I explained in my classes, I'm encouraging my students to use these technologies. I think I, I'm I'm convinced it's part of the future of legal practice. It behooves us to encourage our students to become familiar with this technology, to figure out how to prompt these systems to produce better work product that they'll be able to, to use to do their jobs. And also to, you know, to, by extension, improve their academic research, to improve their writing, improve their thinking. They can effectively have a conversation with a vast body of literature that would have taken much longer for them to have that effectively a conversation with 
in the past. And so it's a way to learn very quickly to outline an argument and to improve their own understanding. And so to me, it's very clear that that these are tools that can be harnessed to improve our understanding of the law, to improve our ability to think critically and creatively about the law. It's one of the reasons why in this book, Abdi and I are predicting that AI can make the law radically better because it can make critical thinking about the law and creative thinking about the law better. So I'm not interested as an academic in getting papers that have been produced in the absence of AI because somehow that that preserves some purity of thought. I, I'm much more interested in, in students having a full-throated engagement with the literature and developing for themselves their own thinking and outlining to the best of their ability, kind of no holds barred to produce an original analysis that, that they themselves are responsible for, um, you know, a little bit less directly maybe than traditionally they would have been, but I think it's a much better work product and it's going to accelerate our learning as law professors and in the profession generally, if, if we as educators are open to it. I think super added onto that are all the considerations around, can you actually effectively stop students from leveraging these kinds of tools? There are questions <laughs> about how is this really different from using Google to find research sources and, and reading them very quickly? And, you know, 20 years ago, we could have had a very similar conversation. Well, if students are using Google or searching Google books, you know, systematically canvassing all of this information, is that okay? Yeah. You know, maybe we should insist on them using a card catalog to search the the law library, and and isn't that the pure way of doing research? I think, I, I think we don't want to battle the technology. I think we want to embrace it, and I think we can make the legal system work a lot better uh, as a result. Yeah. In and so I I I'm going to stick with our earlier answer, <laughs> which is that I I think it's going to maintain or increase employment amongst legal professionals. It is going to change how we approach the job though. And I, I think it's going to raise different issues for regulators. For example, I think we're likely to see a serious generational contest between those who are relatively young, those who are graduating from law school this year, next year, the year after, and uh, an old guard. And it's going to be interesting to see how things play out because the old guard have a ton of judgment, a ton of experience. They have the gray hair or like me, no hair. And they, you know, they're, they're thinking about things in a very strategic, um, experienced way. And so they have certain advantages from that experience in a contest, um, say in, in the context of a particular litigation, the new generation are going to have new tools that they're very comfortable with. So they're going to be comfortable using algorithms, using prediction tools to figure out, you know, how a case is likely to go. And there's going to be some turbulence in the interim as we have like this battle between the older generation who have tons of experience and have intuitions and judgment informed by decades of experience and the new generation who are leveraging massive amounts of data and are comfortable with algorithms and are comfortable making algorithmically informed decisions. And I, I think it's going to be bumpy for several years yeah. and it's it's going to be interesting ultimately to figure out how this plays out. I think Damien is right though. I think ultimately lawyers with AI are going to replace lawyers without AI. 
If I can just add one thing to that, part of what we're saying in the book is that the legal singularity doesn't necessarily come about at the end of a perfectly linear trajectory, right? Like Ben said, it could it could be a rocky road for some periods, and there could be a messy interregnum. And I, I think it's important to talk about that because I continue to want to call people into the conversation because there's a great risk right now around ChatGPT of overreacting. Yeah. So let's say, let's say um, Ben doesn't win the day at the faculty arguments, at the faculty meetings, and instead the old guard wins the day and they say, we're going to scrap all writing altogether and we're going to do oral exams, right? Like, um, and students are not going to prepare anything written. They're going to um, perform all their knowledge in front of us uh, in a moment or, or perhaps even they are going to be able to write, but they're going to write on pen and pad under our... A dutiful eye. Now, if that's the case, then what have you done there? Number one, you've pushed back on technology that's going to continue to proliferate anyway. So the students who engage in that old guard style system are going to be worse off because at some point they're not going to be your students and they're going to have to contend with these technologies that they're suddenly not trained in, right? That's one thing. The other major risk is that you, you know, cut off your nose, spite your face. Suddenly you don't teach writing skills. You think that, ah, this is too confounding a problem. We're never going to be able to evaluate students and improve their writing, so we're just going to, we're not going to do it all together. We're going to test them purely orally. What you've done in that situation, in overreacting, is you've put yourself in a far worse position than you would have been in had you sort of intelligently, carefully, rigorously figured out how to absorb the technology into what you're already doing. And as educators, I don't think we should be intimidated at all. In fact, we should look at our colleagues in the world of mathematics who have found ways to teach fundamentals even despite the fact that calculators are capable of doing a lot of the um, major work. And um, we, we, should, we should sort of rid ourselves of that conservative impulse and really pay attention to the possibilities because our students can become better integrated legal thinkers and more creative and summon all of the resources as opposed to have to perform a sort of narrow evaluation task with artificial constraints. Yeah, and... And quite frankly, I think anyone can think back and see parallels to this. I remember when you couldn't bring a laptop into a classroom and then you could bring a, a laptop in, but it couldn't be connected to the internet. Um, there were times you could not use Google. Um, and so this is in courts, same thing, uh, where technology bring, was, was banned. Tech into the courts, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, this is... <laughs> It's not a new reaction, um, but I think, again, uh, all of those, you know, kind of barriers that they tried to artificially put up all fell to the to the wayside. And I think this is something else again. Um, I know, like, the New York City public schools have banned uh, uh, chat GPT uh, access, except everybody has it on their phone. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, it's it's fighting about the rules of a game that we've already lost. So uh, it, it just really interesting to see how it's going to be kind of fun to see how people try to fight this knowing that that it's a losing battle. Or, Greg, it's arguing about the rules of a game that we already won, yeah. right? Because it's about access to more information. Now, if you have a sort of humble approach and you say, uh, Chad GPT can uh, assist me with what I'm doing, but really... My job here is not just to reiterate information, but to synthesize, to use it creatively, to 
figure out how to connect it up to bigger problem solving tasks. Then you have this like really knowledgeable assistant or, you know, the, you know, the, the world's, the world, an unlimited research assistant like that. That's, that sounds like a win to me. Now, obviously, you know, I'm, Ben and I wrote this book. We're all, we're thinking about all the problems too, but we can't lose sight of that massive gain, potential gain either. And let's not be so cynical as to um, throw out our chance at having unlimited information. Yeah. We're super cynical. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's good that you're talking to us though. (laughs) We ask all of our guests at the conclusion of the interview to answer our crystal ball question. Uh, I I know you guys are, are optimists about this, so I'll kind of couch it this way is, is, you know, what, what are the challenges you see on the horizon when it comes to the legal industry, to AI and, and legal, predi- legal prediction over the next two to five years? You know, what are, what are some of the pitfalls that we should be looking out for so that we do um, move in that more positive direction? I, I think this is a great question. I think I think what I'm going to say in response is I think we're going to see a a mindset change on the part of the regulators of the profession around how do they deal with attorneys who are not adopting technology and for that reason giving poorer advice and it's really it's still going to be about protecting the public interest but there's going to be a big change in the way that that the thinking goes for a lot of regulars. I think we see, you know, the start of that, but we're going to see it's going to be a really big change. So the folks who are not adopting technology are predictably going to be delivering substantially lower quality legal services to their clients. And we're going to see state bar associations, other regulators around the world really struggling with how do we deal with predominantly older practitioners who have a particular way of conducting their practices, which may not really be, you know, to the best advantage of their clients. And how do the regulators deal with that? And I I think it's going to lead to serious problems uh, for those regulators. Like, how do we deal with the old guard who don't want to change? And there's an incontestable issue here because the public interest is very clear. We need you know, up-to-date, proper advice. And, you know, I, I think it's going to be a challenge. I, I don't know exactly, is it two years away? Is it five years away? Is it eight years away? But I, I think it's coming, and I, I see it coming very clearly. I'll, I'll also add to that, I totally agree with everything Ben is saying. I think what we're likely to see in the next two to five years and what I actually hope to see is some more coordination among the profession about what kinds of legal predictive tools we need and, and, and should produce. Because right now, and you see this a lot in the world of algorithmic decision-making, quite a lot of the technologies are being produced by really vendors to solve a discrete problem, right? Like someone sees an opportunity to improve bankruptcy law and they build a tool that's for bankruptcy lawyers. And someone uh, sees an opportunity to um, provide some algorithm for policing and they they sell it exclusively to policing the police departments and and whatnot 
And I think that you actually do need people sort of sitting atop that structure and giving some thought to what are the implications of these technologies? What are the right safeguards? What are the appropriate, um, uh, what tools are appropriate now based on our uh, technological capabilities? Which, what kind of tools do we need some more research and study for? I think if we all accept that um, the technology is going to develop and we can stand in its way and that there'll be, that it has real potential benefits for us, that we can start to uh, come to the table and get on the same page about what we want, what we want it all to look like and the right sort of cadence for um, developing these tools. Now, this is not me suggesting you know, we need to put our thumb on the on the scale or uh, centrally plan what's likely to come out in the marketplace. It, it's just to say that the sooner that we accept all of this as real and the 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 reality of our very near future, the sooner that we can engage in the meaningful and rigorous conversations about what we need and how to absorb it into our day to day practice. And so, I would love to see firms talking to each other. I'd love to see state bars looking at examples of other states and how they've approached things like um, regulating alternative legal service providers. I would love to see the judiciary in broader conversation with the profession and, and the day-to-day -day practitioners about what do our courts of the future look like. Maybe legislatures can get into that conversation too. We need a little bit more of that uh, consensus building and a little more of that coordination. And, and I think we're going to be forced to to reckon with these questions in that sort of two to five year frame. Well, I was with you all the way up until you said the legislature is getting involved. In it. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Legislatures and coordination. <laughs> it's like, mm. yeah, I yeah, hope sorry. so, but yeah. I hope so. Well, Ben Allery and Abdi Adid, uh, I want to thank both of you for coming in and joining us and talking about your book. Uh, so before we go, where can listeners go to pre-order your book? Everything now is about pre-ordering, so. Yeah, folks can go to their favorite online bookstore, whether that's Amazon or Barnes & Noble or whatever it may be, it's available for pre-order from everyone's favorite online bookstore. The title is The Legal Singularity, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Law Radically Better. And we'll have a we'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah, we'll definitely definitely link that out. So, uh, Ben and Abdi, thank you again. And I want to thank all of our audience for taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at Gabe M on Twitter, and I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Uh, ben, how about you? Where where can people reach out to you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, B Allery. And Abdi? I'm also on Twitter as Abdi Adid, A-B-D-I-A-I-D-I-D. -I -I and for the Luddites out there, you can leave us a voicemail on the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7821. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSica. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Martin, I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye.